Hiya, I'm Hallie Labonte from Mega the Podcast. I'm a weekend producer at Twin Hills, a fictional mega church in Broad Ripple, Indiana. And I'm Gray Haas. I'm the youth pastor of our church's teen ministry called Climax. On every episode of Mega the Podcast, we improvise with a new guest comedian playing a different character from our community. Tune in and hear episodes with guests like Cecily Strong. How would you me off or whatever? Sorry, am I allowed to say that? I don't know. You know what? Well, it's covered in the blood. Rory Scoville. Uh, yeah, I said, hey, we could build houses or we could... Uh, uh, we could build our faith in Christ out on a golf course. Eliza Coop. The way I plow the snow yeah. is uh, I'm not doing it by any other guidance except from from God. And Scott adds it. Physics is the proof of God. Wow. Because it's perfect. Oh. Uh, well. Do you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. We couldn't think of physics. Right. Only he could think of physics. Isn't that right? We're on Campfire Media. Listen to Mega wherever you find podcasts. Campfire. My name is Michael McRae. This is a selection from my book, I Am Not Your Enemy. This chapter is called, Fortunately, It Was Paradise. Shall I, he asks. We're sitting on the stone veranda of his hilltop home, sipping tea. The one thing he actually knows how to make. His striped polo shirt is buttoned up to his neck to block the breeze. If you're willing, I say. I'm just being deferential. I know he's willing. He's always delighted to recite English poetry. He loves the attention and he loves pretending he's shy about it. His voice is unforgettable, which makes the poetry even better. He's exaggerated yet authentic, larger than life, but perfectly himself. In everyday conversations, he crescendos and decrescendos with almost every sentence. At times, I jolt back in my chair when his voice bursts into a kind of shouting, and then I lean in when he drops to a hush. Yes, he asks again, smiling with satisfaction, but he doesn't need another answer. His humility is finished. He's ready for Shakespeare. Under the greenwood tree, who loves to lie with me and turn his merry note unto the sweet bird's throat? Come hither, come hither, come hither. Here shall he see no enemy, but winter and rough weather. On he goes with this Shakespearean song, with a verse on ambition, food, and pleasure. The end refrain comes round again. Come hither, come hither, come hither. Here shall he see no enemy, but winter and rough weather. I rest in my chair contented. I've heard him do this dozens of times over the last decade, and I never grow tired of it. This aging Palestinian man sits enthroned in a plastic chair on his own porch on his own land. He's surrounded by military occupation. He has stories of trauma and suffering and discrimination. Some days the sorrow drips from him as if he'd just swam in it. And still, he always ends his Shakespeare the same way, with his own peaceful note. And yes, I hope we shall see no enemy here but winter and rough weather. Believe me. We want no enemy. We want only to live in peace with our neighbors. Sometimes I think he says it because he believes it. Sometimes because he wants to believe it, and the reminder helps. He lets out a heavy sigh toward the Judean hills, as if his breath might bless the land stretching from his fruit trees to the Jordanian mountains on the horizon. Yes, he says, almost like a whisper.
Abdullah and Noha Awad live in paradise. That's what they tell anyone who pulls into their driveway in Beit Sahur, a small town next to Bethlehem. Welcome to my paradise, Abdullah calls, arms outstretched. I step out of the car, smiling already as the gate closes behind me. I'm happy to be back in this place that feels so much like home. The Awad's paradise has been my Palestinian home for years. I've stayed with them at least once on every trip over the last decade. When I interned with Christian peacemaker teams in Hebron in 2012, the daily burden of the occupation drained and depressed me, which was nothing compared to the pain of those who face it as a way of life. Every couple of weeks, I escaped the, we- the weight of Hebron for the paradise of the Awad's home. I would sit out on the veranda in the morning, picking kumquats from a garden tree, scraping fresh jams on my toast, and sipping Arabic coffee. Abdullah and Noha would often sit beside me. We worry about you, our son, Noha would say. Yes, you must be careful, Michael, Abdullah added. Believe me, you must be careful. It felt good to have them care, made me feel safer. Their welcome has always been real, like their paradise. The Awad stone home sits on a hill. The whole place is beautiful, filled with a kind of infectious joy. Potatoes, greens, herbs, and flowers grow in soil held tight by tiered waist-high walls. Orange, fig, lemon, and olive trees surround the house. The Awads grow grapes for sweet wine and jam. Their veranda is wide and long enough to seat large numbers of guests around a table while their young grandchildren bike in circles around the meal. Their home is what I imagine the Garden of Eden to look like, just with a patio and a gated driveway. Abdullah is proud of the home they built together, and he loves to tell me the story. Abdullah was born in British-occupied Palestine in 1942, six years before Israel became a state. He doesn't remember much about those early years except for gunfire and refugees. When the the 1967 war struck, Abdullah was living in Turkey, studying English literature at Ankara University. After finishing his degree, he tried to return home, but learned that everything was occupied. So occupied, in fact, that he spent two years in Jordan applying for a family reunion visa so he could see his family. Abdullah couldn't see a future for himself in Palestine at that time, so he moved to Libya and worked for a television broadcasting company. Abdullah thrived in his job, so much so that the newly in power Gaddafi approached Abdullah to work for him. He needed the news of the world translated from English into Arabic, and Abdullah's English skills and work ethic made him valuable. For several years, Abdullah translated the daily report of world happenings for Gaddafi and his military council, and he was well compensated. While in Libya, Abdullah met Nuha, a Palestinian from Gaza, and they married and had two sons. After seven years, Abdullah and Nuha knew they needed to leave. One night in 1976, they fled Libya with their sons and all the money they'd made from Gaddafi. They never looked back. Abdullah and Nuha returned to their roots in Palestine, settling in Abdullah's hometown of Beit Sahur. Here they built their paradise. Abdullah smiles at me and jokes, I built this house with Gaddafi's money, as if to say that even a dictator's money can be redeemed toward beauty. Mahmoud Darwish is widely regarded as the national poet of Palestine. His prolific poetry springs from the lips of most any Palestinian, from farmer to Fatah leader, baker to banker. Everyone knows Darwish, born in 1941. 
Even after his death in 2008, many Palestinians regard him as the voice of the people. His poems hold both a sorrow and a beauty. Even the English translations of his original Arabic sound magical. He conveyed with such precise language the longing of life in exile, of how it feels to be a refugee dreaming of home. Sitting on a shelf in my home library is a collection of his called Unfortunately It Was Paradise. I won't quote any lines since it's far too expensive to get permission to quote poetry in a book, but it's the title that grips me anyway. Unfortunately, it was paradise. When I read these four words, I can hear Darwish and other exiled Palestinians I know saying with pain something like, maybe it would be easier to let go of Palestine if there were nothing remarkable about it. Maybe it could have been easier to lose our homeland, become refugees, witness someone else move into our houses and eat our food. But unfortunately, it was paradise. We can never let go. These four words also hold the story of the Awads for me, or at least part of their story. With years of the Israeli government denying access to their birthland and finding steady employment abroad, how easy it might have been to stay gone. They could have let go of Palestine and moved on like so much of the world did. But unfortunately, it was paradise. When Abdullah's family returned home, they considered how best to take care of their homeland. I wanted to do something, Abdullah says to me, to do something for reconciliation. So I helped start a center called the Palestine Center for Reproachment Between People, between the Israelis and Palestinians. And we invited many Israelis to come. Let's talk. And many of them came. His tone rises a bit. Believe me, my friend, I'll tell you very frankly, as long as there is occupation, as long as there are settlements, as long as there is annexation of the land, there will be no peace between the Arabs and the Israelis. Peace comes when each party takes what it deserves, its rights. And I think we have the right in Jerusalem. We have the right in the West Bank. We have the right to live a decent life. I built my house with my own sweat, and I think I have the right to live in it. When Abdullah names his right to be in his home, I know he's not being dramatic. I've seen a Palestinian family made homeless by the Israeli Defense Forces. It was February 2012. A family of 10 or so stood in the rubble of their home in the South Hebron Hills. An Israeli bulldozer hummed not far away, close to the settlement, looking to expand into the area where this family lived. It was the second time the IDF had demolished their home. There must be people in Israel who must be far-sighted to think of peace between the Palestinians and the Israelis and the sooner the better, Abdullah says, because extremism and fundamentalism are growing among Palestinians and among Arabs and among Muslims and among Jews. The more it takes, you know, the more complicated it becomes. I think he means the more it takes root, and he's right. The move toward extremes is catching fire around the globe, including in the United States. Israel must realize, he goes on, that building walls eight meters high will not bring her peace. The only way to bring peace is to build bridges of friendship, of peace between Israel and its neighbors. That is the only way. Now, when you came back, why did you decide to work for reconciliation, I ask him? Because you were denied for two years after college being able to see your family. Noah can't visit Gaza. You have a lot of reasons to hate Israel and to want to fight back. Many people in the States look at Palestinians and think that's what you do. So why did you choose a different way? I love his answer. 
I am a Christian believer, he starts, his voice full of conviction. And my Lord told me, love your enemy. I am a pacifist. I taught my children to be pacifists. I don't like bloodshed. I don't like anyone to be killed, whether Palestinian or Israeli. We are all the children of God. And I think that God loves me as he loves any Israeli. So we want to live together side by side. He's preaching now, and it's a sermon I'd listen to every Sunday, especially because I share his faith, his conviction to love enemies, his commitment to nonviolence. In many ways, these are the foundations upon which I've sought to build a meaningful life. And this foundation is part of what led me to Hebron with CPT, to serve as a chaplain in maximum security prison, to study reconciliation and conflict transformation, and even to pursue this project. The only thing, Abdullah continues, is you cannot just sit fold-handed and do nothing. You have to work for peace. When we sit together side by side, face to face, and on the same level, we can understand each other. And the more we understand each other, the closer we become. The only way to live in peace is to give each one his rights. And I think I have the right to live with dignity and with self-respect in my home in my town, with my children, and till the soil and build bridges of friendship and peace with the other side. There are many places I love in Israel and Palestine. In fact, some of the places I love most in the world are on that land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Jerusalem's old city, the shores of the Sea of Galilee, the Awad's paradise, Sunset at an old Roman aqueduct near Caesarea, where my, where my late grandfather excavated as an archaeologist. But most days, I'll tell you that my favorite place of all is the Al-Basma Center. Within a few years of Abdullah's return to Palestine, he paid attention to the unmet needs of his hometown, and he decided to do something. So he formed and led a committee to address the high rate of developmental disabilities in and around his community of Beit Sahur. Beit Sahur means House of Vigilance in Arabic. We had six cases first, he tells me, and his eyes are already smiling thinking about al-Basma. It was 1983, and these six cases we set on the floor. We had one room, no chairs, no tables at all, but we meant to serve. And where there's a will, there is always a way, Michael. And we have the will. We wanted to serve our community. By time, people realize we are serious about this, and the center started to grow. Today, the Albasma Center for the Developmentally Disabled welcomes upwards of 35 to 40 students, as they're called. Some are teenagers, others are middle-aged. I've visited Albasma on every trip I've made to Palestine since 2007. In the summer of 2010, I volunteered for two months at the center with two college friends. It was one of my most meaningful summers. Each day I walked through the doors of the center, the same sounds greeted me. Rushdie joyfully shouting, Mike! Eyes wide with love. Nizar bellowing his random operatic serenades. Senna shuffling in to tell me, Bahibak, I love you. Jamla's voice calling out breakfast as the students whipped chairs and tables around to prepare to eat. And then there were the enthusiastic farewells from the students as they hustled to the bus when its horn sounded at 1.30 and the constant calls of Habibi, my love, my friend. That summer, my friends and I did everything with the students, despite our inability to communicate much with words. 
It turns out, love and laughter go a long way toward working well together. Some days, we all made greeting and Christmas cards from recycled paper. Some days, we worked in the garden. Other days, we sat with the students while they made olive wood ornaments and then helped them collect the sawdust to make fuel to heat the center. We sat in music therapy circles with them and applauded for their theater productions. And we danced. Every day. I soon realized I'd never truly danced until I found myself in a dance-off with Aisa, a young man with a variation of Down syndrome. The familiar beats of Arabic pop music would blare, and I'd be doing simple steps, the kind of moves I learned from Will Smith and Hitch, laughing with Khalil or Muhammad, and then I'd catch sight of him. Isa would lock eyes with me, and I'd know immediately he meant business. He'd start toward me, gritting his teeth and shaking his shoulders like he was doing the milkshake. I couldn't back down from this challenge if I wanted to stay in his good graces. I had to learn to dance well, fast, or he was going to mop the floor with me. A circle would form around us. Yells of excitement cheered us on, and we danced, back and forth trying to one-up the other with some special move. I know in Ice's mind, and probably in most of the others, he always won. He'd clasp my hand with a big slap to congratulate me on a battle well fought. The party would rage on as Aisa retired to a chair, triumphant. Aisa's origin story always stays with me. I've heard Abdullah tell his version of it more times than I can count. Not long after the center opened, Abdullah and his colleagues received word that a young boy had been left in a cave. He could not function on his own, and the angels of Albasma rescued him and brought him to the center. They taught him to feed and clothe himself, to speak and to write. Then they discovered he had a talent, weaving on the loom. Aisa has become a master weaver. To this day, he crafts beautiful rugs for the center to sell. My wife and I have a couple in our home. I've never been part of anything that contained as much joy as Albasma. It will forever hold a special place in my heart. It is where I learned that intimacy doesn't need conversation. It is where I learned the depth of forms of communication other than language and languages other than those spoken or written. It is where I learned that all one really needs for soul connection is presence, attention, and affection. And it's where I learned that without the ability to speak a full sentence to one another, you can build trust simply by showing up and coming back. And every time I come back, I am wrapped in the arms of humans who have resurrected, like Aisa. People previously named useless, embarrassing, and unnecessary are now full of life. They feel as if they are contributing to their community, to a better Beit Sahur, a better Palestine, a better world. At Al-Basma, I am held by the hands of beautiful people who just needed room to realize they were acceptable just as they were. I feel at home in their company, and through all the kisses and saliva, each visit is like another baptism into hope and love. It's not only the work of the center that is remarkable, it's also who is doing it. The center is run by a small group of inspirational women, both Christian and Muslim. Many months of the year, the center falls short of the needed funds to operate. Rather than risking shutting it all down, the women volunteer to take pay cuts from already thin salaries. What will happen if the students, what will happen to the students if they can't come here? Basma, the director, asked me one day. They need this place. And I've seen what she means. 
The students love the center. It's like a beehive, Abdullah tells me. Everybody's working, everybody's smiling. To see such community, such collaboration is good news in times of such fear and animosity. Because Al-Basma tells me that religion and difference need not be markers of division. It's not written in stone anywhere that hospitality and affection shall be suspended in the company of difference. In fact, it's in the presence of difference that hospitality is often most needed. In the summer of 2010, when my college friends and I volunteered with Al-Basma, we met a young Palestinian Muslim woman named Tamara. Due to our language barriers, we were unable to communicate much with her. We mostly drank tea, worked on crafts, and smiled. One day, she sent word that she wanted to host us in her family's home for dinner. We accepted, obviously. Home-cooked Palestinian cuisine is not to be missed. Entering off a side street, we climbed a winding set of stone stairs to reach her family's home. Their house was simple. As far as I could tell, it contained only two rooms, both somewhat spartan, with a few pictures and small woven tapestries hanging on the walls. Outside these rooms was a stone porch of sorts. Grapevines grew over their doorway, and a few steep steps led to a pathway connecting the roof of Tamara's house to her grandmother's. Our host greeted us in the traditional Palestinian manner, Ahlan wa sahlan, you are most welcome. They invited us to sit, with, to sit while Tamara's father, Muhammad, prepared our meal. On an old tin cooking tray, he layered chicken, sliced potatoes, tomatoes, carrots, and large chunks of eggplant. He covered the food with three or four local spices and then placed the dish in an ancient-looking rooftop stove. When the dinner finished cooking, he removed it with care using blocks of olive wood that doubled as oven mitts. He set the tray of food in the center of the narrow outdoor porch, and we all sat around it. Tamara handed us two pieces of pita, which we used to pick up bites from the tray. I looked around me as we started eating. Three white American Christian young men and six brown Palestinian Muslims sat cross-legged in a circle around a meal, eating from one central dish. Muhammad said, Here in Palestine we all eat together, not like in America. Each does not have his own plate here. We eat as one. Throughout that night, we received tea and coffee, as well as lessons from the Quran, insights into life under occupation, and questions about some of the mysteries of the Christian faith. At one point, Muhammad asked, what is a Muslim? A Muslim, he continued answering his own question, a true Muslim is someone who does not hurt someone else, not with the body and not with the words. This is a Muslim. The Quran teaches this. He told us that when we understand the heart of Islam, we may start to see it as a religion of peace, of respect for others, and of devotion to God. He pointed out that like Christianity, Judaism, and other religions, the fundamentalists of Islam abuse its teachings, hijacking popular opinion and reducing the nobility of Islam into something sinister. He told us, we are all brothers, the Jewish, the Christians, and the Muslims, all brothers, we have the same ancestors and all worship the same God. We are all one. After hours of welcome and conversation, we stood to leave, saying farewell to the family and thanking them for their gracious hospitality. Muhammad took our hands in his. His firm grip comforted me. He looked to each of us and said, You must come back to see me before you leave. You must. 
you are like my sons. I knew as he closed the door to their home that his words weren't the answer to all the ills of the world, but I remember thinking they might be a good start. Abdullah and I leave his hillside home and drive down into town to buy produce for dinner. On the way, he pulls down a side street and into the driveway of a home I've never visited. It belongs to one of his friends, an olive wood carver, who sells handmade nativity sets out of his garage. I cannot imagine how he could earn enough money out here to support his family. This home shop isn't close to the tourist areas of Bethlehem. You would only come out to buy from him if you already knew where he was. Yes, okay, Michael, Abdullah says, heading for the car. Wait here and see his work, and I'll return from the market soon. Abdullah speeds away, he always drives too fast, and I turn back to the man and his son who assists him. I realize quickly they speak almost no English, and I regrettably speak minimal Arabic. We do a lot of pointing, motioning with hands, and using short, simple words. He sits and demonstrates how he makes the nativity sets. The craftsmanship is impressive. He takes great care with every piece. The measuring, shaping, cutting, sanding, it's all so precise. His garage is full of unsold nativity sets. If he's discouraged, he doesn't show it. He just continues to make more. I see one that I love. It's small and profound. The Holy Family rests in a stable while the wise men approach from the left. Except, in this scene, they cannot reach Jesus. Israel's separation wall blocks their journey. I assume Abdullah has brought me here so I can patronize his friend's shop. I do not intend to disappoint. Adesh, I ask. I've taken enough taxis and bought enough stuff in Palestine to know the Arabic for how much. Free, he says. Shu? What? I ask, thinking he's used a wrong word. Free, he says again. Abdullah's friend, my friend. And I realize that he's shown enough hospitality to strangers to know the English words for this is a gift. I am sure I look stunned. I put my hand over my heart, nod to him and say, Shukranaktir, thank you very much. I've always received legendary hospitality in the Holy Land, but this man has never met me. And based on his location, I think I may be his only customer of the day. But it doesn't matter. Because I'm the friend of his friend, he wants to be generous. Abdullah's friend reminds me of Mahmoud Abuid. Mahmoud's father and my grandfather were friends. My grandfather was an archaeologist and Mahmoud's father, Jamil, was an antiquities dealer in Jerusalem. They met in the late 1960s, and while their relationship was primarily professional, the deep respect and affection between them was anything but. For 30 years, they visited each other every time my grandparents traveled to the old city. I've watched tears form in Jamil's eyes whenever my grandfather's name crossed his lips. Mahmoud and my father, David, are like brothers today. When they first met in February 2000, Mahmoud jumped to embrace my dad. He said, This very day, your father's name was spoken in my home. And because my father loves your father, it is your obligation to let me do everything I can to help you. For Mahmoud, love created generous responsibilities. When Abdullah returns from the market, we drive back to paradise, and I set my new nativity scene in my room next to my bag. Noha is preparing stuffed grape leaves, one of my favorite Middle Eastern dishes. The three of us eat together. There's such peace here around this table. 
I sigh with delight, thinking of all the years left to sit around this table with this couple who was like family to me. One day I hope to bring my wife and children and we'll pick dates together in this Garden of Eden. We finish dinner and I rise to help Nuha clean. She snaps at me with love. Sit, my son, you are our guest. Abdullah leans back. Yes, he says, his go-to filler word. He gazes at his home, his orchards, and the hills across the horizon. We must have hope, Michael, he says at last, turning toward me. We hope that one day we will have peace in the land of peace, and people will return to their homes and live together side by side with Israelis and build bridges, not walls, between us. On January 30th, 2018, the sound of an incoming text wakes me. Usually I ignore the phone until my alarm sounds, but for some reason this time I roll over to check. It's from my mom to my siblings and me. We learned on Facebook that Mr. Awad has passed. I can't believe what I've read. I know Abdullah faced stomach cancer almost a decade ago, but it's long been in remission and he seemed healthy and happy when I last saw him. I need to check the news for myself. I open Facebook and go to Abdullah's daughter's page. The first post I see is a friend of the family offering condolences on the passing of Abdullah. My wife, Brittany, is in front of the bathroom mirror getting ready for work. She hears the sound of my weeping and bursts through the door. Michael, what's wrong? I'm sure by the sound of my cries, she thinks someone in the family is dead. I can barely choke out the terrible truth. Abdullah died. With a face full of compassion, she holds me while I cry. Someone in the family has died. I'm unable to travel to Palestine for the funeral a few days later. I remember and grieve him from across the world. I soon learn that for the days and weeks before his sudden death, Abdullah did not want to leave his home in Beit Zahur. The morning he passed, his son-in-law had come to take him north to Ramallah for a health visit. They walked together out his front door and into the carport at the edge of the property. But that was all Abdullah could do, or maybe all he would do. He collapsed there in the driveway and died. I can't help but find that unbearably poetic. Welcome to my paradise, Abdullah always exclaimed. He would say, I am like a fish. Take a fish out of water, it dies. Take me from my paradise and I will be like the fish. Believe me, if I die in my paradise, I would die with a smile on my face. I can't count how many times he would tell me how he preferred the humble rocks of his Palestinian paradise to even the soaring Alps of Switzerland. His soul was in the soil, he'd say, in the grape leaves, the figs, and the lemons. And there, at the very end of it all, Abdullah's body couldn't leave. It walked to the outer edges of his home, but no farther. It would not cross the threshold. He fell, lost himself to his home, took his final breath in the rich air of his garden. I guess he couldn't bear to leave. Fortunately, it was paradise. What inspired you to write this piece? And it's a part of a collection, correct? It is, yeah. It's the fifth chapter, I think, of a 10-chapter book. Um, so um, the book is called I Am Not Your Enemy, uh, Stories to Transform a Divided World. So it's it's stories of 
reconciliation uh, and justice and beauty in areas of divided conflict, uh, deeply divided societies. So Israel and Palestine, Northern Ireland and South Africa. And uh, this chapter I wanted to include mostly just because uh, I love Abdullah and Al-Basma and uh, I wanted to tell people about it. And, um, you know, the original title I had for this book was called Stories That Might Save Us. And I thought of this kind of project as telling telling stories of, of beauty and healing and possibility in the midst of uh, societies and countries that are known for violence. And so I wanted to kind of say that the stories that will help us out of our division, that will kind of save us from our fear, are these unexpected stories. And that includes stories like Al-Basma, to hear of uh, a man like Abdullah and the people of Al-Basma who, uh, in the midst of such incredible division, are working together across lines of, of you know, different religions and, and faiths and uh, to take care of the people around them. And that those are the kinds of stories I think we should be telling more of and listening to because they kind of point us uh, toward a, a way out of the division that we so often live in. That's awesome. Is uh, all your writing based off uh, true experiences? Yes. Uh, mm. So I have not yet dabbled in fiction. Uh-huh. Um, so uh, my yeah, my first book was about my experiences working with Christian peacemaker teams in, in Palestine. And the second one was about stories of prisoners and what they teach us about forgiveness. And then now uh, this project. So uh, I've been really drawn to the power of true stories. Um, and um, there's great power in fiction as well. But uh, real life is interesting enough. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I've, I've, I've enjoyed kind of just finding those stories of power from the, the real experiences that happen to people. But I am considering a novel in the future. I've got some ideas. So uh, <laughs> I may dabble in fiction. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and then can you speak on your work with Narrative 4? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Narrative 4. So um, uh, I am the Southeast Regional Manager for Narrative 4, which means that I'm in charge of this sort of the Southeast hub for this organization. And Narrative 4 is is a global nonprofit um, that uses uh, personal story exchanges as a way of building empathy between people. And so the, the, the methodology we have is called a story exchange. And uh, we pair people up and invite them to tell one another a true story from their life. And they listen really deeply to one another. And then uh, they retell each other's story in first person pronouns as if their partner's story actually happened to them. Uh, and so it's a really amazing way to um, kind of spark empathy and and kind of build those those muscles. And so we focus a lot of our story exchanges on issues of faith and identity and immigration and violence and the environment and um, kind of looking at some of these these issues that tend to divide people and using stories as another way in to say, yeah, when we often sit down and just try to talk about immigration or, you know, various uh, expressions of identity, um, those conversations sometimes don't go very well. But what would it be like if we came at it through stories um, and through having to listen so deeply to one another's stories that we could retell them as if they were our own? Um so it's it's been quite amazing to see the work of Narrative Four and to find, and to actually get to be part of it now. And just in just seven years since its founding, we've facilitated forty eight thousand stories, uh, the exchange of forty eight thousand stories all over the world in probably about twelve or fifteen countries. And so it's just sort of taken off everywhere. 
um, because there's a real hunger for it. There's a real uh, desire, especially in this in kind of this increasing divisions that are happening all over the world for people to say, is there not a better way that we can live together? Like, <laughs> is there not an, a, another way to encounter the humanity of one another? And so um, so I have the privilege now of getting to work full time to help kind of build story exchange programs uh, all over my home region. in the I live in Nashville, Tennessee, so I get to kind of work all in this area to to bring uh, increased empathy and connection to the places that I love. So that's amazing. Um, so yeah, what, what is like, um, a day working at narrative four? Like (laughs) no way to describe it. It's always so different someday. I mean, it's like, in some ways it's like any other job that, you know, um, you know, I might spend an entire day sitting at my computer sending emails, you know, um, <laughs> or there's a lot of spreadsheets and a lot of Google Docs, you know, and a lot of because we're it's global. So I'm the only staff member who doesn't live really in the New York area uh, for the most part. Um, so all of the meetings are on Google Hangouts. And, you know, it's, it's sort of the typical 2019, <laughs> you know, organization where we're all remote. Um, and then other days it's. Um, it's a lot of hands-on stuff with people. Like in a few weeks, we're about to run a big Northeast regional summit. So we're going to bring a lot of our people from all over the Northeast region together. And we're going to have um, trainings for facilitation. We're going to have kind of um, narrative for around the world and like what we're up to around the world. We're going to have literary events because we have a lot of really amazing authors that are affiliated with us. In fact, we were founded by uh, best-selling authors, Colin McCann, National Book Award winner, Ishmael Bea, Terry Tempest Williams, Reza Aslan. I mean, all kinds of people. Um, and so we've got these deep sort of literary roots. Um, and so sometimes you get to do amazing programs like that. And then other times I'm sitting here in my home office, just on my computer, sending emails to people. So it all depends. Yeah. Michael, is there anything specific you'd like to plug to our audience? And we'll also have like a show notes, which will include links for everyone. Sure. Um, no, I mean, the big thing, I guess, is uh, if buy the book, if you're willing, it's available on Amazon for pre-order. Uh, I am not your enemy. Um, and uh, um yeah, you can follow me uh, on my blog, michaelmcrae.com, or on Facebook and Instagram at Michael T. McRae. Um, and, uh, and check out Narrative 4. And it's the number four. So it's narrative and then the numeral four dot uh, com or on any of the social medias you can or social media, you can check it out. So, yeah. Cool. Thank you so much, Michael. Great. Yeah, thank you all. It's been a pleasure. Stories But Shorter is produced by Jeremy Schmidt and hosted by me, Cassie Jerkins. 